Welcome to the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm Ryan Schlesinger, Director of Revenue Operations at Crexy, and today's host. Each episode, the Crexy team dives into a broad range of topics and conversations with featured experts to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news in CRE. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next. Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. Today, we are lucky to sit down with David Wheeler and Anthony Trollope of Hartman REIT and discuss their 2022 outlook on investing in office properties. David serves as Executive Vice President of Ch- and Chief Investment Officer for both Hartman Income REIT Management and Hartman Advisors. David has over 30 years experience in the sales, acquisition, disposition, financing, and leasing of commercial real estate investments and uh, leads the company's capital markets activities, including acquisition, financing, and disposition programs, totaling over $1 billion in transaction, acti- $1 in transaction activity. Anthony is Hartman's Director of Interactive Marketing and has more than 15 years of digital marketing experience. Before joining Hartman, uh, Anthony was the Director of Digital Marketing and part of the senior leadership team at AMID, a Houston, Texas-based company specializing in medical devices. He oversaw a seven-figure digital ad budget, led the marketing team, and oversaw operations across web strategy, search marketing, social media, and content marketing. David, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to this. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, enjoy the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. And one, one more thing about Anthony. He, uh, he's an award, real award winner. Uh, Friday, he got the company's highest award from the founder. He got the CEO award. Um, he's been with the firm about a year and made some really significant transformations to the way our marketing team works. And the, kind of, the level of achievement in that department is, is, is just tremendous. Amazing. Well, Anthony, congratulations. I'm glad you chose the Crexy podcast as your first, you know, media media <laughs> outlet after your big award. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks, Ryan. And thanks, David, for that uh, uh, introduction. Appreciate it. So I'm, I'm especially excited to have uh, two guests like yourselves on this on this show today, because we have David, who obviously comes from the investment side, who's seen it all. And I would love to hear about your experience at CBRE and, and how that translated over to Hartman. And then, Anthony, I think, you know, you you really bring the other side of what what Crexy does, which is the, the marketing piece and what marketing looks like in commercial real estate. So maybe, David, I'll, I'll start with you, but maybe take us through the story of how you got to Hartman and how you fell into real estate and, and what brings you here today. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So uh, coming out of college, I had a civil engineering degree with construction management option, allowed me to take some business courses. So I hired on with a general contractor doing uh, basically site work, um, horizontal construction, some people refer to it as, and, and one of the early assignments uh, with that firm was on a business park in Plano. Um, Ross Pro Sr., founder of EDS, had acquired 2,600 acres in, in uh, West Plano in uh, 1979. And in 1983, when I was with HB Zachary, we landed the contract to do all the initial infrastructure in a business park that's now known as Legacy. It's... Uh, if you're familiar with that name, it's where uh, Toyota has relocated their uh, domestic headquarters, their U.S. headquarters. It's uh, where J.C. Penney 
uh, built their headquarters. So it really it really took off over the last uh, three decades. But that was my kind of my introduction into real estate, and and I was rubbing elbows with the executives at uh, Electronic Data Systems who were overseeing that development project, and that was really my kind of entry into the real estate business and my fascination with them and what they were doing in terms of overseeing us as a contractor is really what drove my interest in, in commercial real estate. That's very interesting. So you, you literally started from the ground up working there you go. In, in prepping, in prepping these, uh, these sites. So you start out on the engineering side, you're, you're working really in the nitty gritty of details. How, how did you get from being an engineer over to the brokerage side? Yeah, great question. So before I left undergraduate school, um, I had put a lot of thought into what I was going to do for my future and, and realized that I wanted to go back and study business more in depth and, and plan on going back and studying business at the graduate level before I left my undergraduate. I got two pieces of, two pieces of advice. Um, one was to go work full time uh, for a while before you go back to school. And the other was to go uh, and, and, and when you went back to graduate school for an MBA, go ahead and quit and go back full time for school. I think I think a number of these executives had seen people try the, the part-time MBA program mm -hmm. all the way through it. But sure. I knew before I left, I was going to get an MBA. And, and that's what I did. I worked for H. Bruce Zachary for a couple of years, uh, went back to SMU with uh, and got an MBA there with a concentration in real estate. That allowed me to change industries, change my profession. And uh, that was my entry to uh, what at the time was Coldwell Banker Commercial, a Sears subsidiary, which is now known as CBRE. And uh, where I landed um, on the regional staff for a couple of years, and then and then went into investment property sales for fourteen years. Excellent. So so once you found yourself at CB, you're working in investment sales for fourteen years. Did you have a market focus or a re asset type focus, or did you start out on a on a team with some mentors, or were you kind of set out on your own? I, I did have great mentors. Um, it's a good question because uh, when I joined the firm in '86. Uh, here, specifically here in Texas and so, at some level across the nation, there were some things going on that were really shaking the foundations of the commercial real estate industry. You had the 1986 tax law, tax law change. You had the uh, SNL debacle. And, and here specifically in Texas, you had oil trending down into the mid-teens. So all of that created a real significant impact on the commercial real estate business. Uh, a lot of properties went back to lenders. Uh, the state was "quote unquote" redlined for a while, so finding debt capital was difficult, and uh, values were kind of being chased down for a, a really a substantial number of years from from '86 to about '91. It was it was difficult for people to uh, make investments in Texas, difficult for them to justify them, and sellers were struggling with how to how to deal with the market and, and mark their assets to market. So. Um, I wound up working on kind of whatever I could at the time. There was an intention of going into the industrial sector, but where you noticed the uh, a lot of the opportunity uh, in the late '80s was was in other areas. It was in office or as in shopping centers or or even in land to work with these uh, lenders that had taken back properties and needed to bring them back out to market and sell them. So I, I wound up kind of working across functional lines and working on a lot of different property types. By the time I had been in the business five or six years. I'd worked on office projects, shopping centers, land, self-storage, uh, really quite a number of things, even a little bit of industrial, which is where I sort of started the business. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And I think it's 
it's important, especially for a lot of young, young people in commercial real estate. Like for example, I had a pretty quick career where I've really only seen kind of the real estate cycle from 2014 to now, where we probably until COVID, you really didn't see that many shocks uh, in the way you're describing where capital was especially challenging. And for the most part, depending on the asset class, sellers, sellers and buyers weren't really having those kind of mark to market uh, bid ask spreads. So I think it's it's very interesting. I, I definitely want to come back to that, but I think that actually dovetails nicely into Anthony's side of the business a little bit. So Anthony, maybe maybe give us a little background on, on where you started and then how you how how your marketing career drove you more to the real estate side. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I spent uh, my fifteen years or so building building a business uh, out of college, an online business, digital business. Uh, did did pretty well with it. Uh, it was an online business uh, connecting uh, wholesalers and retailers with one another. It's an online community and it had a marketplace attached to it. And uh, I actually managed to, to uh, achieve a good exit to uh, a private equity firm um, before I moved here to uh, the US uh, here in, in Houston. I met my wife and, and, uh, and got married and, and moved over here. So um, you know, that kind of led me into uh, working for a couple of other people, uh, you know, into the W2 world. And, uh, you know, personally, I've always been interested in real estate, um, you know, mostly from its, its wealth building and uh, in investing in orientation. But uh, clearly, it's, it's proven itself a very tangible asset, you know, with very dependable returns. And I think that's important in an increasingly fragmented and digital world. Um, what excites me the most and one of the primary re reasons why I joined Hartman was uh, for the ability to be part of this digital transformation. You know, real estate in particular is still a very old fashioned industry, uh, a lot of traditional methods of doing business, particularly on the marketing side. You know, I, th I think we're really in the early stages of digital transformation uh, and digital adoption compared to a lot of other, other industries. And it really excites me to be part of such a mammoth industry that's going through such a rapid change. It's, it's very disruptive. Uh, it's very fast moving uh, times for real estate, particularly on the commercial side. And with things like prop tech, Internet of Things, you know, cybersecurity, and now even things like blockchain, which uh, is, is an even more intriguing prospect for us. Those are just some of the reasons that kind of got me interested in in a marketing role within real estate. I think that was, that, that's a perfect, um, kind, of, kind of a perfect bridge into what David was talking about a little bit as well. So I, I kind of want to pivot back. So David, it's, it's kind of the mid eighties. There's a lot of different fundamentals that are, are presenting some challenges. You know, Anthony alluded to how we're still sort of in the first inning of a digital revolution of how we market and transact real estate. Take us back to what sourcing buyers or even finding listings to represent. What did that process look like for you in the 80s? And, and how did that evolve while you were at CB? Yeah, the, uh, virtually everything was, uh, you know, paper printed um, and, and using the phone. You know, at the time in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, there were a few of us that, that had PCs with, uh, you know, software on our PC to help us kind of track our contacts and, and, and maintain a, a database of contacts, but but it was uh, a lot of phone work. Uh, email hadn't really taken off, and uh, virtually everything that you worked on or processed was was printed paper. You know, it's 
it's uh, everything's being printed out and construction and marketing materials is real. Uh, it's pretty cumbersome. You know, we're trying to do as much of it in the house as possible. And, and therefore, it's not only less sophisticated, but it's it's probably uh, much, much lower quality than what you'd see today uh, for many reasons. But uh, yeah, there, there's some real challenges there. But uh, uh, th that training in terms of making lots of phone calls and connecting with lots of people was was great. It was tremendous. CB did a really good job of explaining how to cold call, how to farm a market, how to develop a market. Um, I spent a lot of time driving neighborhoods and areas. Um, in fact, one of the first things they asked me to do was drive all the industrial uh, properties in Dallas County. Wow. And it took me about uh, six months to not only cold call you know, the, the hundreds of folks that they wanted me to call, but to literally drive all the industrial areas and, and uh, kind of look at all the properties. So, uh, but it was, it was great training, uh, being out in the field, seeing the properties, you know, at eyeball level and, and uh, good stuff. You know, I would tell people that, that uh, Google Earth and all these technologies we use today are really valuable. They help tremendously, especially if you're remote and you can't get to a property. Sure. There's nothing like driving the neighborhood and, and, and walking the property in person. Yeah, I, I, I just remember when you've come across a lot of leasing brokers, a lot of people or a lot of them would say, I, I never had any software that would tell me where someone was located. I, I could walk a block and tell you who leased every floor of every building in our CBD. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I totally hear you on that one. I think, Anthony, one thing about one thing about marketing and real estate, especially on the investor side, the buyer, buyer side. Um, something that can be interesting is that you really have a number of different customers that you're trying to market to, it, it, depending on what function, right? Raising money to buy, looking for people to purchase your assets, looking for people to, uh, to, to do a number of different things. How do you, um, you know, who, who do you see sort of as your target customer, I guess, where, you know, D David in his past life as a broker, you're really prospecting for people to let you represent their assets and then looking for buyers for them. But right. on the REIT side, Anthony, where would you say you're, you know, where is your team focusing your strategy? Who are you trying to reach? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot more direct deals just coming out of the pandemic, you know, less broker representation just because. Uh, these deals are a little bit smaller, but also uh, people can kind of realize that they can uh, they can negotiate directly with uh, the landlord. In our case, you know, get get some good deals going. Um, so you know, we, it depends on the venue, you know, and it depends on the property. You know, we have certain assets in our portfolio that lend themselves more to direct deals and more uh, and less so broker deals, and we have some properties that are in heavy broker-driven markets. Uh, that tend to come with broker representation. Uh, you know, our tenant mix is particularly uh, geared towards uh, smaller businesses, um, and uh, that's actually helped us through the pandemic um, because we don't have a massive exposure to large corporate tenants, um, particularly as our most of our assets are in that B kind of class of property. Um, but back to your original question of how do we target them uh, you know, we use platforms like Kretzi to hit both brokers, but also, you know, we know that uh, tenants are using, um, you know, the platform themselves to find uh, great deals, great leasing deals as well. So I don't necessarily know, uh, you know, we do certain deals that we gear towards, uh, to, towards brokers, you know, certain incentives that would appeal to them, um, as we do for obviously tenants as well. But um, 
most of the narrative, most of the content that we create is, is pretty uh, applicable to both, uh, both targets. Absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's super helpful. And I think creates an understanding of where, where marketing within your, your sector can kind of be targeted towards. So, so David, coming back to you, your, 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 your past in brokerage, I always think that having a background in brokerage allows you to just see so many iterations of how a real estate deal can go and can create incredible experience for, for the future. So you, you go from brokerage to obviously going on to that, that buy side. Um, you know, how, how, what was that transition like? Did it feel seamless based on your background? I guess what, you know, talk us through that, that move. Yeah, it was somewhat seamless. Um, it, brokerage is a great um, investment sale, investment property sales is a great background for acquisitions work. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really started my, my uh, career with Hartman uh, is doing, is focusing on acquisitions early on. It's kind of the agent of expansion here in DFW. We didn't own anything outside of Houston at the time. Sure. Um, so I, I would tell you that, you know, 95% of what I knew at CB in terms of the markets and how they worked and how to look at a property and how to analyze it all played into uh, my acquisitions work here at Hartman. Um, the, the, the secret sauce at Hartman was about learning uh, the investment philosophy here, how, how to get things done internally, and, and why one deal was better than another mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the, the, the buying strategy you know, here. So you know, that, that took a little while, but you know, as, as somebody who'd been in the business for you know, 16 years, it really didn't take long. Uh, it was a relatively seamless transition. Got it. And so, so sorry, remind me again, when, when did you start at Hartman? The beginning of 03. Okay. Wow. So almost, almost two decades at Hartman now, how uh, you've obviously seen a lot of swings, a lot of different cycles there in your time, I guess, you know, how, what are some of the huge differences between what your day-to-day -day is like now versus what it was earlier in your tenure there? Well, so I started out really just focusing on acquisitions um, over time my territory grew and then I took over the department and our, our department responsibilities grew. So we, we took on a little bit of disposition work. We took on debt sourcing. We took on tax protesting. Wow. Uh, we spent a lot of time over the last five or six years talking to investment bankers about a potential IPO. I coordinated our investment banking activity, which thankfully played into some of our debt sourcing. One of our biggest right. pieces of debt was sourced through Goldman and an investment banking relationships Excellent. That, that we have there. Uh, so, so the role really expanded fairly dramatically over the years. And uh, acquisition is still a cornerstone of what, what myself and my team do. But we also do some financial planning and analysis work, you know, kind of corporate level analytical work uh, and other sort of modeling and special projects as well. So it's, it's, it's a significantly broader role. Uh, a significantly bigger company and uh, a more forward-thinking company than it was at the time, obviously. So sure. And so, Anthony, now how how many years have you been with Hartman? So uh, I've been here for uh, nearly uh, sixteen months, I suppose. So not not too long, and sure. uh, you know, providing uh, just strategic growth uh, and leadership on the marketing side, but. Uh, one thing to mention about Hartman is we're, we're vertically integrated in a sense that uh, we, we sort of control every aspect of, of our business. We've, you know, leasing's in-house, property management's in-house, 
construction, marketing, obviously is in-house and, and Dave's team on the, the acquisition side. And we also have an investment sales division. So, um, so I'm leading all the marketing efforts on, on both sides of the, the, the business function, you know, the management company and the investment sales division of the, of the REIT, um, which really means that, you know, I'm responsible for finding new, new prospects and generating leads, you know, to, to fill up uh, vacancies in our buildings and, um, and then um, helping also um, with the investment sales team so that they can continue to, to raise capital, which we then recycle back into acquiring more assets that, you know, fits uh, Dave's team's uh, profile, you know, a buying profile. Sure. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's going to be a influx of more people with your background coming into real estate companies, right, as real estate starts to adapt to a lot of the digital marketing strategies that other companies have used. You know, granted, you're still probably learning a lot and absorbing a lot about not just the real estate industry, but more specifically your markets and, and Dallas and Houston, et cetera. I guess, you know, how, how, how's that learning curve been? You know, what, what have you done to sort of know enough to, to execute in that marketing role? Or, or would you say that there's a good, um, kind of separation of specialties that that allow you guys to be successful there yeah i mean uh good question i think uh it helps to have uh folks like uh dave who've been in the industry for for 30 40 years you know to lean into them and, and ask them uh what their opinion is and surround surround yourselves with with them and conversations that they're having uh, we do a lot of uh, activity on the thought leadership side, so we we put folks like uh, Dave and others in our in our company um, on a bit of a pedestal. Really, we we do we 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 put them out there and say, look, you know, we we know what we're talking about. We've been in the industry a long time, and we've got we've got some uh, thoughts and opinions and insights. And so, obviously, being surrounded by those, I, I tend to pick things up uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the marketing side comes a little bit more naturally to me. I kind of know what I'm doing in, in that in that realm, and and as I said, we're going through a, a really great digital transformation inside real estate. So real estate is is behind the curve, and and Hartman, you know, uh, is 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 still a little bit behind the curve, you know, in terms of its digital presence. And we're we're obviously that's an opportunity, um, one that I relished when I came into the role. Um, but it also just gives you the, a sense of the magnitude of what's possible here over the next uh, five plus years as we we bring this transformational cycle to reality. Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of that makes sense and is, is definitely helpful to hear. I mean, David, you know, a kind of last point on just on, on Hartman at a high level, I guess how how, you know, as someone who's seen probably everything you can in this industry, what um what what has sort of the digital transformation or, or you know the the marketing impact how how has that helped or mitigate challenges that you've seen in the last couple of years yeah i i think what what anthony's talking about and what he's been able to achieve here over the last um, 14 16 months however long it's been has really been tremendous uh he, he inherited a, a couple of folks in on the marketing team and really accelerated what they were doing and, and added additional staff and uh you know, marketing to tenants, marketing to investors, and creating opportunities for the rest of us to get out in front of the industry and bringing organization to that and structure to that has been really tremendous. Um, they've been great collaborators and, and uh, 
brainstormers on new ideas and ways to get us exposure, way to create that exposure in a way that really explains the story, you know, the way it should be explained. So um, I, I'm really impressed. And, and I think it's been uh, well beyond just about anybody's expectations on the platform. That's great to hear. I think that's a you know, CEO award speaks for itself. So I think uh, that, that all that all adds up. So I want to uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit, and I kind of want to talk more about what you guys are doing every day, which is mostly how, how you know investment thesis trends, market analysis. You know, we you know correct me if I'm missing anything here, but we kind of kicked off the call. Your portfolio is 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 in, across Texas, majority of which is office, and then the other the other portions being retail, mostly shopping centers and some industrial as well. Um, just high level as someone who's by no means a Texas market expert, uh, I think you guys are in an especially unique situation where you've seen the office climate change, and there be a lot of pivoting to remote work and or a hybrid model. Which, which would maybe hamper uh, office footprints. At the same time, Texas has been one of the biggest migration points for businesses in the country. So you've sort of had these two conflicting fundamentals going where some would favor office, some may, may, may change the outlook of office. But I guess at the high level, for, for, for those who aren't as familiar with Texas, you know, what are you guys seeing in the office market? I'll start there with David probably to kick that off. Sure, sure. The, the, one of the one of the most interesting interesting things I noticed um, was pretty recent, probably three months ago, four months ago or so. I was I was looking through the data that our our uh, leasing team now puts out. We've got a couple of folks that really produce some more much more elaborate reports than what we used to re, uh, review. And and one of the things I noticed was half of our leasing activity through half of the year was being generated by tenants that were like 3,000 square feet and below. And it was it's relatively consistent with the story that we've observed over the last year and a half, you know, after the initial shutdown last year and, and, and the reopening of offices, what you noticed was the smaller tenants started to come back quickly. They didn't necessarily have HR departments or legal departments mm-hmm. that were driving decisions to stay remote. Got it. Or real concerns. So you saw them come back to the office quickly. You saw office utilization drive up quicker. You know, if you're looking at the Castle data, uh, Austin, Houston, and, and DFW have led the nation uh, since they started tracking it uh, or kind of putting it out there during the pandemic all along. And they've been well, way ahead of the rest, rest of the country. So, so those folks were decisive in coming back to the office. Therefore, you would expect them to be decisive on renewals, new deals, seeking, seeking space. Sure. And our, 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 our program of providing a lot of move-in ready suites was really paying big dividends uh, over the last year, year and a half, as tenants, mostly smaller tenants, were, were primarily the ones being decisive, were looking for those move-in ready suites. They, they're not... They're not interested in looking at a space that might take three to five months to build out. They're ready to go. It's time to move now or within a month. And you really don't have a lot of time to do construction. So that's one of the big trends I would tell you is a lot of the activity has been in small tenant space. And a lot of it's been for those those tenants that are looking for move-in ready suites. David, I thought that was a really, really helpful kind of outline of of who the, the, the target tenant was and sort of what they were looking for. So Anthony, if, if I'm assuming sort of that probably became 
the heart of maybe messaging and a lot of your marketing materials. Did you have to sort of alter the channels you would use or, or go after a different audience based on the fundamentals you were seeing? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, for a large part of my role when I first joined here in the last summer, you know, we were we were in the heat of the pandemic, and uh, and one of my first assignments was producing a piece of collateral that helped uh, not only our pro property management teams um, articulate the benefits of being in the office to tenants, but also provide you know the employers, you know, our tenants with. Uh, the reasons why folks should be working from the office. And so we, we developed a lot of uh, uh, research and insights and we went out and get, got all that and put it all together in a piece of collateral. And, and that was really our messaging. You know, we were in the trenches just helping people not only navigate the pandemic safely, but, but you know, where they could and where possible uh, do it from the office because, um, you know, that's the business that we're in. Right. And I think I think another another piece that was kind of a hot button topic when it came to office was the whole suburban versus central business district, you know, keeping in mind smaller tenants, you know, being becoming more of the focus. But were those folks looking for different different types of geographical locations or sort of same same separation as all tenants? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, a lot of Class A buildings have suffered because they, they're predominantly located in, in CBDs. So that's why cities like NYC, San Francisco, Boston and, and the such have been so impacted by the pandemic. You know, folks want to be closer to their homes. And uh, one pronounced trend that is going to persist is, is this flight to suburbia. Uh, you know, the pandemic has led to people really reevaluating quality of life and you know, the tolerance of long commutes, it probably isn't, and the appetite to, to have those continue probably isn't there moving forward. So, um, you know, that, that benefits us because our, our, our buildings are not in uh, CBDs, they're, they're out in suburbia and, and that's where we like to be and that's where we like to invest and that's where we see the value um, over the next couple of years, certainly. Um, so I don't think that trend is going to go anywhere. Um, another thing that I'll mention, you know, since uh, since a lot of our buildings are class class B, I think we only have you know maybe one one or one to three that are actually class A. Our occupancy rates have held up much better than than most. You know, we we do have a couple of corporate tenants that are, are occupying large full floors, but and some of those maybe haven't returned quite yet. Um, but fortunately, most of our business, as, as they, they've said, is geared towards the smaller tenants. So, you know, these are folks that don't have large international uh, office footprints with a dilemma over, you know, which group of employees to bring back and when to bring them back and how to handle hybrid work schedules and so forth. I mean, a lot of that is still being figured out. And you know, we thought Labor Day was going to be the big return for offices and, and uh, some folks pushed it back. Some people have come back and uh, it just it just varies. We, we really haven't seen a great deal of that, uh, not only because we're here in Texas and we have a you know, pro pro business state and, uh, mm -hmm. and certainly uh, are uh, without getting um, political, you know, some of the stance that is adopted here is is looser than than other states sure. For, for sure. Yeah. Which has definitely benefited us. But 
on the the smaller tenant side as well you know these these are much smaller businesses with uh fewer employees and less complicated uh circumstances to deal with so so david anthony i think gave a nice capture of of, of the the tenant and velocity side leasing side how has this maybe impacted your investment thesis or buyer strategy you know in the last 30 or 18 ish months any transactions you can point to that were dramatically impacted by these shifting fundamentals? Not, not so much uh, on from our standpoint, because mm-hmm. we've always been oriented towards suburban B and, and a lot of smaller tenant properties. We, we're just reaping the benefits on a comparative basis. When, when you look at the CBD and the fact that that's a lot more corporate environment and, and you know, Anthony was pointing out a lot of the differences. The other one I would point out is when you're in the suburbs, you're not only closer to home, you're probably not taking mass transit to get to work. Whereas if you're the CBD, totally. it might be right. rail or, or whatever to get sure. there. Um, so so we, we, we're just reaping the benefits in terms of you know, rising occupancy this year and, and, and tenant demand uh, and being able to source tenants for our properties. Sure. Would you say you were uniquely positioned since this has been your bread and butter for, for a long time? Did it give you maybe a bit of a jump start to already have inroads with a lot of these owners, a lot of the players in the space, whereas maybe some of these larger groups or, or people from out of state that probably were looking to move their portfolio allocation to Texas? Did that kind of give you a bit of a jump start on, on the competition? Yeah, it does. And, and, and really, the, the reason we have a bigger uh, jump start is when you're talking about suburban B that might be 10 million to 30 or 40 million dollars in value and might have a small tenant uh, orientation to it, those are what I would call operator assets. And our model is property management, leasing or internal. I think if you're coming from out of state, you don't already have a portfolio in, in one of the major Texas markets. It's hard to figure out how to get your arms around that suburban B asset that has a lot of granularity to roll. Whereas in our case, We've got the machine built. You know, there's there's uh, operational teams yeah. providing white glove service. We know the assumptions. We we know we know the assumptions. We know how to service those properties. We know how to get our arms around them and execute on them quickly. And I think that's a bit intimidating for investors that are coming from out of state. You know, they, you know that that whole process of how do we deal with a hundred tenants in a mm-hmm. two or three hundred thousand square foot project, which we have sometimes. Uh, those are kind of the, the outer limits in terms of small tenant basis, but uh, th- those are challenging assets to operate and, and you need the right staff. And you need to be already be there in terms of staff to make that happen well. And, and I think, I think what you just covered there on the, on the execution side yep. outlines a big difference because something you would read about in the wall street journal and number of other publications was on the residential side, you would see people from other markets be bidding up, the price on houses, you know, 125% of what the list price was. But to your point, because you don't have that operational infrastructure on the CRE side, my guess would be you wouldn't see that quite as much. Did you see any deals kind of go haywire because uh, a a player from out of state maybe came in and said, we just got to be in Dallas, Houston, Austin, because of what's happening there. And we're willing to get a little more aggressive or were they shying away from it because they said, this is not a place we're comfortable. We don't know it well enough. A little bit more shying away. It does seem like, you know, when we pursue an asset, it's it's still more local and regional competition or it's folks from out of state that either already own assets here or investing through a local company. Mm-hmm. How about 
Same, same sentiment, Anthony, maybe more on that leasing side. Have you seen a lot of tenants that weren't local before that may be looking to grow a presence in Texas come? I know on the suburban side, maybe a little trickier, but I guess, I guess what is, what is out of, what is the out of, you know, the inflow outflow look like from a leasing perspective? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of inquiries from out of state, you know, particularly in California is the obvious one. Um, you know, uh, I can't think of any deals in particular, but, you know, we, we do have a lot of people moving here and some mm -hmm. people are, are moving here with their businesses. Sure. Um, so we would definitely service them. We've definitely had some interest from uh, corporate uh, relocations as well, coming out of uh, California and other places to to Texas. And um, obviously we're always excited to, to see those levels of inquiries uh, and, and for them to choose a brand like Hartman would, would, be, would be big for us. Sure. So, so considering what we just talked about, I think we, we got a really nice capture of what, what's happened over the last few months here. Looking forward, understanding some large fundamental things, which, which I know are impacting different pockets differently, but rising inflation, uh, the, the market doing what it's doing. How, how do you see sort of those macroeconomic levers impacting occupancy rates and tenant retention? And are you guys, is that, is that, is that something that's maybe impacting your decision-making now or something you guys are looking at as we go into next year? You know, I would say that in inflation expectations and this whole discussion around transitory inflation, is it transitory? Is it just transitory? Is it transitory for longer? Is it you know, what structural inflation going to look like? Tends to play more into a capital markets discussion and the way sure. people price the debt and the equity more than, than operational trends like retention and, 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 and even rent rates. Um, in the long term, I think it has the potential to play in the rent rates. Um, the, the other thing I would tell you is in terms of the energy space, you know, with the turnaround in oil, we're, we're starting to see employment you know, growth uh, around the energy industry. Um, so so that's, that's kind of a green shoot, so to speak, as a result of a current, current economic trend. Um, but the inflation expectations, inflation trends really influence our capital markets discussions and our thought process on, on debt primarily. You know the timing of the sourcing of debt, which mm -hmm. whether you go floater or you know long-term fixed debt uh, sure. equations more than anything else. Got it. And so, have you have you started to adjust your strategy there yet, or is that still sort of a wait and see? No, we're we're kind of in the middle of that right now. We're 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 in the middle of uh, sourcing some some additional uh, refinance opportunities right now, um, and we expect that we will be. Um, moving from less short-term floating to more longer-term fixed as we move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking more through, um, you know, obviously we just covered, I think, how your debt strategy is changing a little bit, you know, which, which was influenced a lot by inflation and, and, and interest rate uh, expectations. You know, as far as I, and granted, expecting anything to come out of out of a, a Congress is, is always a, a wait and see. But from an infrastructure side, you touched on the energy sector, which obviously Texas is is a big piece of your economy. Is that something that you guys are are giving any sort of confidence in, and, and thinking that you can expect a big boost from from infrastructure spending, or is that not really playing into your your plans? 
You know, it, it's really hard to figure out where that's headed right now. You know, if you if you got totally. a machine and went back, you know, three, four, five months, a lot of folks expected not only would you have this infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure package, you would have the social spending package that had, had gone through uh, uh, reconciliation with just the Democrats. But apparently that process has got kind of sideways. So how that plays out moving forward, um, we haven't really tried to figure out whether that's going to impact us in any particular way. I think, I think you know, there's there's obviously concerns about the level of spending at the government level, but sure, we're, we're not really thinking that uh, we should be relying on fiscal spending uh, from the government to sure. kind of trends that affect us directly here in Texas. Uh, although that it's possible that they could moving forward. Right. No, that's totally fair. I think I think counting on anything right now in the current political climate is probably not not a safe bet of, in terms of people coming together and making stuff happen. So I think that that totally makes uh, is fair. So as far as you know, strategies adjusting, and we kind of talked about a lot of what you've done to date, shifting to those smaller tenants, shifting to space that's ready. Is that something you see carrying on through the next twelve months? I think you know, with with especially in Texas, where it's been a big pro-business state, COVID, COVID restrictions have been much more lax, which is definitely helping the office market. Um, you know, what, it, it, does it feel like you guys have been ahead of the curve and are just going to kind of ride that out? Or do you feel like there's, there's more adjustments that you're going to make here in your, your strategy in the next 12 months? Well, I think we've been ahead of the curve and I think we're going to double down. I, I think you'll see us double down as, as next year. Or both both on the marketing side and on the execution side for delivering those move-in ready suites and mm-hmm. for opportunities to secure new tenants and retain tenants. Um, we, we've also got a number of strategies to rise the retention to, to uptick on the retention level amongst sure. tenants. Um, some of it's economics, some of it's service-driven. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which we believe we can drive uh, occupancy through drive and retention as we move forward. So that that'll be a key focus moving forward as well. Excellent. Yeah, I think uh, health and wellness is is definitely a trend that's going to persist again. You know, we uh, we launched uh, needlepoint uh, bipolar ionization technology in several of our buildings, which is in its simple layman terms is basically clean air. You know, it's sanitized air. Uh, pipes through the buildings, HVAC systems. Mm-hmm. And we were an early adopter of that and, and, and finding and introducing that technology is just one example of how we learned and evolved you know, throughout the pandemic. And, and uh, uh, you know, we're just very adaptable in our approach. And we've, we've shown that with, I think, very good resilience throughout the pandemic. I believe we've come out on top, um, you know, and, and that's what we've needed to do. We've needed to do that. Um, and uh, I think I think there will be more focus on uh, clean air, uh, obviously, not just because of this, but I think uh, there's, there's definitely a concern with um, with density kind of going in the opposite direction. And what I mean by that is we're seeing a de-densification trend. And I, I never knew what that term was until uh, until Dave kind of introduced me to it probably 12 months ago. And what we're seeing is um, is is density being uh, uh, reduced in a lot of our office spaces. You know, so people are having uh, uh, less kind of shared workspaces, and and uh, 
I think the pandemic has probably exacerbated that trend, you know, and, and we're probably going to see more people move towards private offices and, and space between desks. And that mm. plays to our strengths again, you know, because from a square footage basis, you know, space is a lot less expensive in suburbia than it is in downtown. Sure. So, uh, you know, we can build that flexibility into uh, our leasing requirements. We have the capacity in our buildings to do that. And we have, in-house construction that can adjust those floor plates, you know, very quickly if we need to. So those are kind of two, two trends that I think uh, will definitely continue to, to gather momentum as we move out of the pandemic. Got it. No, I think that, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, as far as, you know, what's, what's exciting to you, what do you see with if, if goal, big goals for 2022, what you're looking forward to? And, and one other question is would, would you guys ever expand your portfolio outside of Texas or do you think there's, you know, Texas is obviously a beast of a market. There's, there's enough there for you. Yeah. Let, let me talk a little bit about kind of goals for uh, 2022. The, uh, the, the founder is, is uh, directed that we push for 90% occupancy next year. So um, there, there'll be a fair amount of heavy lift, not only the rest of this year, but next year to get there a lot of uh, operational focus to make sure that happens. And I think we'll see some real significant progress in that regard. So nice. I think, I think, yeah, I think things are going to be great on the occupancy front uh, moving forward. Um, the question about Texas, uh, we love Texas. Um, I, I can see us expanding into other Texas markets. We have sourced in places like Phoenix, Denver, Atlanta, Orlando, Tampa, in the past, we like those markets. Those are great, sure. uh, great opportunities. Um, we, we just haven't found the need to enter those yet. And we do understand that, that when and if we do expand outside the state, that uh, we'll have to have those boots on the ground operational capabilities to make sure those assets are attended to and run, you know, to, to the to kind of the white glove standard that the company uh, provides. So I, I don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon, but I think it's a long-term possibility for sure. I, I do expect us to expand into other other regional markets here, though. Sure, makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I kind of want to kind of end on this note with both of you guys on advice. Uh, what what you kind of tell people that specialize in both of what you do, and I'll I'll start with you, Anthony. I guess what would you say to a lot of our listeners who are also looking to source tenants for office space, look at, looking to fill space, or or how to you know, what, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to find buyers for their assets or tenants for their space? Yeah, you know, I mean, it depends on who you speak to. I mean, uh, the Class A folks will talk up all the amenities that these buildings off, offer, you know. Um, and uh, the reality is, you know, not everybody needs or wants a, a yoga or a Pilates studio with large open spaces. Uh, right. And not everybody wants to be downtown, you know, um, and we, we aren't in that space. You know, our, our assets, as, as, as we've talked about today, are in the suburban markets. And we have plentiful tenants that are very happy with uh, a good looking space, you know, with A-class amenities, uh, coffee bars, you know, uh, gaming sections. And, you know, we take advantage of our air conditioned spaces and um, and folks are happy with that. And uh, um, we also, we also, uh, our rates are, are pretty good. You know, we have uh, a lot of uh, uh, flexibility in, in, in a lot of our offerings and 
good amenities, uh, good spaces, you know, convenient locations uh, in, in suburbia, suburbia. So, um, you know, uh, and as, as Dave said, you know, we really do specialize in uh, white glove service. You know, we, we will have multiple touch points with the tenants on a daily basis. We all consider them uh, sacred. In fact, you know, that's, that's, that's one of our uh, core values is that the, you keep the tenant that you have that's sacred. And so we, we do a lot of things that um, uh, property management companies don't do out there. And uh, it's the reason that we're so successful with retaining so many of our tenants is because we, we really treat them well. So I would say, you know, let us own your business. Uh, we have some great assets and, uh, and with service that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't think you can find anywhere else. Sure. Sure. And, and David, I guess, you know, pivoting back to you, what advice could you give someone, whether they're in brokerage on the buy side, looking to make that same move, one, one of those three, you know, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, a couple of, couple of things on the advice side. Uh, if, you're, if you're thinking of this as an investor and you want to buy commercial real estate, uh, think about your niche. Think about what it takes to execute in that niche and whether you really have the capabilities to do that or not uh, and how you would foster those capabilities. So you've got to have a very... Uh, uh, executable plan uh, to make sure that what you're doing works well. And there are lots of different ones out there. There are lots of success across the spectrum in, in terms of property types, mm -hmm. property sizes, et cetera, different MSAs. Uh, but make sure you understand how to execute on here as well. Uh, on a personal standpoint, um, I, I would encourage people to make sure they're um, developing relationships in the business and doing a great job of networking. Uh, I attend at least a couple of events a week when I can to make sure that I'm, I'm fostering existing relationships, promoting new relationships, turning up uh, opportunities for, for the firm, and really creating value through developing a network that, 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 that really gives us different opportunities across the spectrum. Some of those are vendors, some of those are investors. You know, there's lots of different things you can touch and reach when you're networking. Um, that will be beneficial to the firm. Excellent. I think those are those are very wise, wise words. And uh, well, great great note to end on. And gentlemen, thank you both for joining us and sharing your insights. I, I learned a lot, and you guys really cover a lot of dynamics uh, across the spectrum how commercial real estate is done, and, and gave me a lot of insights on suburban office and Texas and and all how all the dynamics work. So I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the opportunity. Sure. Thank you very much. And before I let you guys go, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Uh, so you, can, you can find us at uh, hi-reit.com, h-i-r-e-i-t.com. Uh, you can also find us uh, both on LinkedIn. Uh, we're both pretty active on LinkedIn, share a lot of our thought leadership and insights and uh, what we think is interesting in the market. So definitely follow us on there. Um, and uh, you can also, if you're interested in investing in uh, Texas, you can go to hartmanreits.com, hartmanreits.com and uh, learn about our investment uh, sales division there. Excellent. You won't want to miss that. If today was any precursor, there is a, uh, a fountain of knowledge from this group. So plenty more where that came from. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. 
visit go.crexi.com slash podcast. That's go.crexi.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexy podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexy for video recordings of each episode. Goodbye, stay well, we'll see you next time.